Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? Good. Good. It's encouraging. I, I mean, I've been following this COVID thing like everybody else. I'm a little mm -hmm. bit COVIDed out like everybody else in terms of like reading about it, I'm sure. But, you know, the numbers uh, are encouraging in Alberta, especially in Edmonton, Bruce. I mean, um, they're just... You know, there's a one or two, three new cases a day, and it's been that way for a few weeks now. So it's kind of encouraging that these that the isolation measures have worked because they certainly are hard on people. But it's paying off. We had a death here in the Sturgeon Hospital in St. Albert the other day. That's a little unsettling to have it close to home like that. But yeah, poor there people. are deaths everywhere. Alrighty. We are going to talk about non-COVID topics, and um, we're, we're mainly going to talk about, I, I was fortunate enough uh, to ask, I, I, you know, I've been working on this PK stuff, Bruce, trying to figure out the Oilers penalty kill. And I mean, there's a few things that hit you over the head, right? Like the save yeah. percentage being so much better this year than last year. And then the other thing that hits you over the head is they allowed more shots on the PK, but they gave up fewer grade A chances and fewer goals on the PK. So that's that's an obvious stat hitting you over the head that something's going on but what is it <clears throat> i've been writing a series of posts on it and becoming increasingly frustrated because i just didn't i don't have the answers and, but somebody did and i thought okay maybe i could get an interview with the others with an orders coach they're you know it's they're 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 at home like the rest of us maybe they have time to talk to talk to me and, and fortunately uh, Jim Playfair did. He's the person. He calls himself the head communicator on the PK. He doesn't, you know, he says it's a team effort. All the coaches are involved. Okay. But he's the guy who is the, the, he's the head communicator. So he took on the task and he, and he took a half hour to talk to me about exactly what the PK did this year. And he didn't talk so much about last year when they had the worst save percentage in the NHL about anything that went on last year. But he did talk about. He wasn't here last year. He wasn't here. And, you know, he did study it. He might have some things yeah, to say, but he did talk about what they were trying to do this year and how it worked out. And I think he gave actually an absolutely stellar description of the tactics that they used this year and uh, that paid off this year. Now, maybe they use the same tactics next year and they don't pay off, but um, he did a very fine job, I thought, of describing uh, what happened on the PK. So we're going to talk about that interview. It's now posted. Okay. Uh, but before that, Bruce, let's just quickly talk about um, a spate of signings on the Oilers and one that's going to be negotiated hopefully in the next month or so, if it's negotiated at all. That's the Riley Sheehan signing. But before that, they, they signed a couple more uh, Euro defenders. Uh, Marcus Niemalainen, <coughs> who was a third-round draft pick, I believe, in 2016. Yep. And Philip Berglund, now he's not coming over next year. Right. Berglund's coming over the year after. And he was, what, a fourth round pick? He was also a third round draft pick in 2016. All right. They actually had three of them, and they they used them all on defensemen. The third one being a U.S. college guy named Matthew Cairns, who is not really developing all that rapidly, but there's still time. They, 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 all three bets, they had four years kind of to wait to see how the guys developed. And they used almost the full four years on each of Marcus Niemelainen and Philip Berglund. 
And it looked like they both guys might just be sort of drifting back into um, unrestricted territory. But uh, uh, Scott Housen gave an interview with Bob Stoffer a little over a month ago, and uh, he was on. He's on. He's now president of the American Hockey League, Scott Housen. So that was kind of one of his last official communications as uh, uh, on behalf of the Oilers. But at that time, he expressed. the organization's interest in and confidence in signing both players. And Scott Housen's a man of his word, apparently, because on April 30th, they signed Nima Linen, and on May 1st, they turn around and signed Philip Berglund. So uh, two more big um, uh, Nordic defensemen to the, you know, the prospect chain, train, but under contract and now certainly part of the, of the, uh, of the team going forward. It's a big step to go from the reserve list to the 50 man list and be under contract. And so. So Nima Linen is six, six and 190 pounds. In the <laughs> and, and he can, he's what I remember. I watched him. Uh, uh-huh. I watched him some of his games from his draft year. The guy can, the guy can really skate. He's quite agile for a, mm-hmm. a player that big. And I think, you know, the idea is he doesn't put up any points. He's never put up any points. Right. Uh, he's a defensive defenseman, but um, someone that large uh, who can skate that well, who has NHL level skating ability and NHL size, I can see why they signed him, even though he's not much of a puck mover. Um, maybe he can work on that aspect of his game and he'll be certainly in Bakersfield next year. No yes. doubt about it. And um, I like the signing. Um, he, he, you know, We'll see. Like, I don't think he's a great bet to become an NHLer, but he's a he's an okay as it goes. He's an okay bet. Well, when you when you take a, a third round draft pick, I mean, you're already rolling the dice on the guy and expending a pretty significant asset. Uh, when you you know when you pick a guy in in uh, uh, you know in the top 100 of a draft. And so you might as well play it out and see how it goes. He's shown good signs. Housen had very nice things to say about how big step forward he took in 2019-20. And that's what got the organization interested. And, of course, the clock was ticking. So uh, uh, they went uh, 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 and got the deal done. Interesting thing with Nima Leinen, uh that does not apply to Philip Berglund is that he spent two years over here in junior, junior hockey playing yeah. for the Saginaw spirit. So his, um, uh, reintroduction to the narrow ice should be a lot, uh, a lot less painful than you might expect for some of these euros coming over. Like last year, I think we saw it with Joel Pearson a little bit that the big ice or the little ice, uh, really, really, uh, put stress on him. Well, Nima Leinen, he's got the advantage of those two years in Saginaw. And even though he went back to Finland with one year of junior eligibility remaining, at least, you know, he's got that under his belt. And now he's got some years of pro under his belt, and he's ready for the next step. And the next step is clearly Bakersfield. I, I wouldn't anticipate seeing him in Edmonton at all in 2021. Uh, but now he's in the system, and, well, you know, We'll, we'll see what transpires as he gets a chance to play the North American game. I was more excited about the Berglund signing, although Thank when you. I heard he's not coming for a year, I was a little disappointed because I think he should be coming now, honestly. Like, I think he's, what is he, 23, 22, 23. This is, he's done everything. He, he's become 
top four, maybe top pairing defenseman in the Swedish league. He's a right shot guy. He's a big guy. He's putting up points there. He's done everything he can do in the Swedish league. I don't really understand why he's spending another year there. Although maybe with all the uncertainty in the world, maybe he just, I don't know if that factored into his decision or not. But um, I just think, man, he, he, they could have used him in Bakersfield this year, especially on right defense. I mean, right now on right defense, they have Evan Bouchard, who's likely to be on the orders. Uh, not David DeHarnay, but what is his name? Uh, Vincent. Vincent DeHarnay, who's 6'7", Goliath of a player who doesn't skate that well. And Janice Jacks, who's a, um, a U.S. college free agent who may or may not pan out. Um, they've got Lenstrom, Theodore Lenstrom, Marcus Niemelainen, and Dem- Dmitry Samarukov on the left side. They're, they're quite covered. So um, Berglund would have been that veteran on the right side, but it looks to me like they're, they're going to have to now bring in a veteran uh, on the right side for the Bakersfield defense. But I, I Bouchard, excuse me, um, Berglund is a, he, you know, by all accounts, he can really move the puck. He's a very strong puck mover in the Swedish league, a decent skater, and he's got good size. So I'm excited about that sighting. Six three two zero nine. Like he sounds like a clone of Adam Larson by those by those specs. Uh, I mean, as for style of play, I don't suppose he's quite as greasy a player as Larson, but it sounds like he's got a lot of game. And you know, there's a there's a outstanding uh, contributor to Low Tide's comments section named Swedish Poster. Nobody knows who he is, but he he's, he uh, clearly has some kind, a lot of inside knowledge of the Swedish league, and he uses his pseudonym, so there's no way of telling. But he's been talking about Philip uh, Berglund since before the Oilers drafted him as being a good uh, <clears throat> a good target. So, uh, uh, and he ta- he talks about you know his skating is sort of good enough like he's not a speedster he's not uh, he's not this not, not like Lenstrom that they signed earlier in the week that skating's his number one but it just sounds like he's got a, a full all-round game uh this year he added a little bit on the power play he's you know he was uh uh number two on the team in ice time yeah and he's played his whole uh his whole career, like he's a, a native of Schleftia, and he signed with Schleftia when he was like 12 or whatever the rules are over there. It's the, the old system we used to have back in the original six days where you signed a you signed a green sheet or whatever the heck they called it with the team and you were their property forever. Uh, and so he's played with Schleftia the entire time. Uh, but just before uh, the uh, interview with... Um, with Housen, he just signed a two-year deal with Lynn Shoping, and some of us saw that as writing on the wall that he's just not coming over. Uh, Lynn Shoping had his coach, uh, Bert Robertson, former Edmonton Oiler, who uh, was his coach in uh, in Shaleftia, and he wound up moving to uh, uh, Lynn Shoping, and now uh, uh, Berglund wants to go play there too. And he signed a two-year deal, and the compromise that was reached, I guess, was he signed a two-year deal with the Oilers. They're going to lend him back to Lynch Hoping for the first of those years, and then he's going to come over. And by the time he gets here, he's going to be 24 years old. So we'll see. He should be close to, you know, to to being ready. And then it's just a matter of needing some time to uh, to adjust to that narrow ice. And like I say, he has zero experience. He's never played internationally for Sweden, at least not over here. So. Uh, even then, he's going to be a half-year or one-year project. But uh, he's a guy, you know, with a chance, no question about it. 
Well, the Oilers could easily lose a defenseman in the expansion draft, so yep. they may need a, a guy like that, a more veteran guy to step right in, especially because mm-hmm. he plays the right side. So, yeah, good signing. Yeah, uh, he played with Philip Broberg this past year too, so he has a little bit of experience with uh, with that player that uh, they could well both wind up in Bakersfield in uh, October of 2021. So. Yeah, so essentially outside the NHL right now, Bruce, they have Lenstrom, Nimalainen, Samarukov, Bouchard, Broberg, and Broberg, and um, and uh, Berglund. So that's six wow. players who are, you know, Decent some of them are prospects. some of them are really good. You know, Bouchard and Broberg, obviously, and, mm-hmm. and Samarukov could come on and be a player. So Berglund. So the Oilers, uh, that's it's it's kind of comforting. <coughs> we'll see how the, we'll see how many of those guys turn out. But man, that's a because they've got seven defensemen in Edmonton yeah. to play hockey. Including well, Augustin, right? So the orders are really stacked right now, Bruce. For the first time, they don't maybe they don't have that true number one guy as they as we always say, but they've got a lot of good defensemen. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, you you gave a nice list of six uh, six guys outside the NHL, and that didn't include all of Ethan Bear, Caleb Jones, and William Lagason, yeah, who got promoted to the NHL this year and spent time in the league. Now Lagason. Of those three, he's the one that's maybe got the furthest to go. I think Jones and, and Bear are simply put on the team. They're so there, yeah. we don't need to think about them any longer as being uh, minor leaguers, but we sure can think of them as being young defensemen. They're 22 years old. So there's a, a real nice uh, uh, a collection of, uh, of solid, uh, promising defenders under 25 years old in the organization, like a large number of them. Yeah, it almost brings a tear to my eye, Bruce, having such quality on defense. Like when you mentioned Bear and Jones, I mean, what two fantastic young hockey players, and they're both just starting out in the NHL. And you know, the owners should should be able to to keep them on the team for some time, unless mm-hmm. they, there's a horrible salary cap uh, issues that come up, which which might. All right. And in there, just one quick mention of James Hamlin, the other guy that was signed since our last podcast. Uh, and he's an Edmonton native of the Southside Athletic Club. In fact, he played on that super team with Tyler Benson and Stuart Skinner uh, in 2012-13 when Benson set all those crazy records. Uh, anyway, he is a uh, free agent out of junior, 21 years old. He just finished his uh, his uh, overage season. He played five full years in Medicine Hat, over 300 games, which is a rare uh, milestone for juniors. And he was, get this, captain of the Medicine Hat Tigers for three seasons, which is, to me, unheard of in junior. You know, once in a while you hear of a guy coming back and being a captain for a second year, a third year. So uh, that, I mean, on its face, it doesn't tell you anything. And at the same time, it tells you they probably got a nice nice uh, um, character guy there. They would not have, you know, he would not have had that that role on that team for that long if he didn't have some sort of good underlying uh, qualities about him. And, I mean, he's 5'10 and 181 pounds or something, so, I mean, he's going <laughs> he's going to need to dig deep to uh, to make it. But he is an interesting candidate. Not, to me, that's a good signing. I don't uh, I don't mind rolling the dice on, a, on, a, on one or two of these uh, uh, overage juniors that are, you know, starting to show something uh i mean he was third in the whl in scoring so i mean we're not talking about a a, a guy you know it's just a role player he was a big time scorer for medicine hat so 
I, I like the signing. And yeah, I mean, it's along the lines of the Cameron Hebig signing, and Matt Hebig sure looked good at the development camp, but he never was able to break through at the AHL level in two years there. So, all right, Bruce, let's talk about uh, the Playfair interview and the okay. Oilers' penalty kill. Um, so, let's just start with the um, Playfair's. It, w- it was very interesting. So, their overall philosophy on the penalty kill isn't to treat it as a penalty kill. It's to treat it just like go out there and play five-on-five hockey using many of the same tactics. So there's one fewer player out there. Yep. So so um, in terms of like the – like they're not obviously aggressively forechecking, but in terms of the forecheck and uh, the neutral zone play and the D zone play, there's just a lot of focus on, on getting one-on-one battles going and engaging aggressively in those one-on-one battles as if you're just – it's just even strength play out there and you're going for it. So when the play is coming through the neutral zone, a lot of the teams use a specific PK uh, formation, which Playfair called the 1-3. And at the 1-3, you have one player center ice and three players lined up on the blue line. Player mm-hmm. at center ice is supposed to funnel the play to one side or the other. And then the, uh, the player at the blue line strikes the puck carrier at the blue line, makes a hard stand at the blue line and tries to keep it from coming in to their zone. So this is this is a very it's like a, a it's a neutral zone trap trying to prevent a zone entry. Yep. The Oilers' philosophy is different. The, the the winger will go on the forecheck will go hard after the player carrying the puck, but the defensemen are not so much focused on that hard stand at the blue line. What they want to do, Bruce, is they do not want any penetration into the middle of the ice or cross seam passes. So what they're looking for, the, the wingers go on hard after that player carrying the puck in, but everyone else on the ice is picking up, it sounds like picking up players in the middle of the ice, covering them, so they can't cut into the middle of the ice, so they can't get a cross-seam pass across the middle of the ice, and so they can't get a shot from the middle of the ice. Because they want to avoid three things above all else on this penalty kill. They want to avoid shots, penetration in the middle of the ice, shots in the middle of the ice, they want to avoid cross-seam passes, and they want to avoid rebound shots. The rebound shots is, I'm sure, every team's the same. It's collapse to the net, right, when there's a shot and pick up somebody. So every team in the NHL is doing that. But it sounds like the Oilers are doing something a, a wee bit different than the other, than many of the other teams, at least, in terms of the zone entry. And this probably explains more than anything else why there's more shots this year, outside shots, but right. fewer high-grade scoring chance shots, because they they are covering off the middle of the ice. That's their entire focus. So what did you make of that, Bruce? Uh, it made a lot of sense to me, and I could visualize some of the some of the things that he was talking about. Uh, I, I mean, I know they had the, uh, the low-high uh, guys in, in the middle, and often they would, they would pressure uh, the guy on one side of the umbrella. Uh, he would pass to the top of the, you know, the, the, the center point, but there'd be a guy on him. And if that guy could make another quick pass, uh, he would find a guy open on the far boards on on what was originally the weak side boards. But the guy'd be a long way from the net and he'd be on off on an angle. And he'd still have, you know, there'd still be one defender in front, usually pushing around with the net front guy. But it wasn't like uh, even if they gave up two good passes in a row, they weren't giving up clean shots, and they weren't definitely not. We've talked about the cross-seam passes more than a few times. That yeah. used to absolutely kill the orders. 
And uh, this year, there just seemed to be a refreshing lack of them. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, yeah. what what um, Playfair says that says that has been identified as a priority. And of course, he also identified uh, that they brought in uh, some additional uh, uh, troops in uh, uh, the persons, especially of Riley Shea and Josh Archibald in the forward unit. Uh, defensemen, mostly the same, but Ethan Bear added. And of course, Mike Smith is one of the uh, one of the two netminders this year. But uh, part of that was player acquisition and those players coming through and delivering the goods on the penalty kill. But a lot of it clearly was system. I found this a fascinating read uh, to uh, to see, you know, dig a little deeper into what it is they're trying to accomplish out there. And now we've got 71 games of results that say, no, are they trying to accomplish it? They've accomplished it to this point. They've got, you know, outstanding results. So once the puck gets into the Oilers zone, they're, they're again, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, as long as the puck's kind of like it's once the once the uh, the other team has full possession, mm-hmm. which will happen to any team, right? Th- then the orders are doing what everyone's doing. They're they're blocking passing lanes with their stick. They're trying to, but when there's still when there's doubt, when like the puck's in play, when it's a bit of a scramble, and that's often the case on a on a penalty kill, they're again playing it like it's five on five. Playfair uh, said, and um, so what they'll what they'll essentially do is if the puck's on one side of the ice. They'll send three guys over there, right. one guy to engage in a fierce puck battle, two other guys on the other two offensive players covering those guys, and they'll have one guy hanging back in case all hells breaks loose, and they and they, right. they beat the Oilers three players at the point of attack, point of defense, and it gets by them. There's one guy back to help the goalie. But they want those three players to fully engage and fully battle. And I can remember this, Bruce, thinking – like being on the edge of my seat at times mm-hmm. watching the Oilers PK, thinking, "Man, they're this is that risky." One guy, that one guy is really open, isn't he? Yeah, this is but risky. But he's like, a long way from the net. If he beat, if they beat this guy, don't they see that? Like I was thinking, but usually, often aggression pays off in hockey, oh. and the whole strategy was essentially they know that they're up against these absolutely fantastic attackers, so they don't want the attackers wheeling around at the top of the umbrella of the, uh, which is, you know, just below the offensive blue line, you know, half wall to the point man to the half wall. They don't want that wheeling around of the puck there. Like we saw so often the owners were able to do on their own power play. What they wanted to do was the puck goes to the half wall and they wanted to force everything down low, down to the boards, down to the corners behind the net, because they felt that this kind of aggressive uh, man to man coverage then at that point had a much better chance of, cutting off a big section of the ice on the other half of the ice. And you can then engage in that, that uh, one-on-one battles. They call it, he called it striking. That that's when you can strike and mm-hmm. win the puck and shoot it down the ice. So that was, that's the idea. Generally speaking is to push force that play down low to the corners, strike there and ice it. What'd you make of that? That it, it all sort of fit with uh, what I remembered seeing. The, the other uh, aspect that I noticed that you asked him was something we talked about about sort of the the net power play goals and the uh, uh, and the business yeah. of pushing the offense. And he sort of said that sort of phase two to uh, to more aggressively pursue the uh, the, uh, the options of what they can do when uh, Oilers have the puck. But this year they identified that. I mean, the defending is clearly the 
main role of the penalty kill anyway. Uh, so, uh, and the results certainly show that they had uh, very little attack on the shorthand. And part of it was just choice of player personnel uh, that the, that they used. I mean, um, Nuge got some some time with Kara, who's uh, you know not a strong attacking player, and uh, uh, Drysaddle got you know a lot of specific own zone uh, assignments, winning faceoffs, and so on. Um, but David didn't play on the par- on the penalty kill at all, essentially. So they're you know they pull their horns into a little bit to some degree, but they by focusing on the defensive play with their better defensive players, um, you know you can't argue with uh, with the results to this stage. So one of the things I asked him about was Chris Russell's shot blocking numbers mm-hmm. because they took a precipitous like they what forty percent drop from year to year. So when the, the Oilers play kill, yeah. on the penalty kill, when the Oilers penalty kill was so bad last year, he blocked a lot more shots than this, this year. Although every other defenseman's shot blocking went up, so I was trying to make sense of that if there was any sense to make of it. And and Playfair, uh, he said he didn't know. He, mm-hmm. he said he he hadn't noticed that. He said that he said they're all blocking shots, and he said Chris Russell's our premier shot blocker. He he spoke ex- exceedingly highly of Chris Russell's defensive I game. Saw Something, that. Something that both you and I have done a lot because we we recognize the value of the player's uh, defensive ability, and and he so he said what he said about shot blocking was in the, he he referred to the PK as the two minute game, right. and you have to win the two minute game and shot mm-hmm. blocking is absolutely crucial to that according to the coach, and so what happens is you have the pucks on the half wall or down in the corner and these fierce battles going on and the orders are like three man they have three men down there and the one guy on the other side that that are usually a defender who's still in front of the net. And if the puck then swings over fast and then mm-hmm. the guy is open, like let's say it swings from the, um, the the right half wall to the point and then to the left half wall. And that left, that guy, he's open for a shot. And it's like Alex Ovechkin or, or uh, Patrick Liney. That's when they want the shot block. There's this moment right. when they are absolutely looking for the shot block for the player to sacrifice and do that. Playfair said he's got a whole group of defensemen who are willing to do that. And he was extremely happy with that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's still a mystery why Chris Russell's shot blocking totals. Yeah, that is, that is a mystery. And it may just be a small sample thing. I mean, we're only talking about relatively few minutes over the course of uh, yeah. 70, 70 games. You know, what are we talking about under three hours of, of hockey? And if you're, if you're counting block shots, uh, you know, in a, a handful per hour, it doesn't take very many uh, uh, cases um to you know to change that average significantly and maybe that's all we saw was just a little bit of an outlier that uh because as we did notice all along the other d-men all seem to block as many or more as they have in the past so may just have been a um uh you know maybe instead of blocking shots he forced a couple more to miss the net and stuff and then yeah uh, uh they're so uh, his overall well totals did go did go down. I, I thought he left his feet less this year, but yeah, that's could well mean nothing. I mean, we're mm-hmm. we're I, essentially there are so few stats that are useful in in rating rating individual play on the PK that I was probably just looking for something, and maybe there's nothing there. Probably there's nothing there. Uh, Bruce, uh, the one other thing that stood out was. Uh, he talked about how Dustin Schwartz, the goalie coach, prepared Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen. Yeah. Now, Dustin Schwartz has been here for a long time, so presumably it would be the same 
way of preparing them. So what he does is he prepares a videotape of the opposing team's power play that they're about to play. He sits down with the, sits down with the goalies and goes over. Here's the f- three, four things that this other. Here's their tendencies. Here's the shots they're trying to get. And then the whole team, the whole PK unit, sits down with the goalie and all the coaches, Tippett, Gulitson, Playfair. They all sit down really? and they all go through it then. Um, so this really is a, a total team effort. And so, so they all know, the goalies know, and the players know what's, what's going to come. And what struck me, I don't know what's happened in other years, we can't say, but there seems to be a huge focus in getting the goal. Like the goalies really understand this PK and they understand, and I'm just guessing here, I didn't like, so if they know that there's going to be intense one-on-one battles, the chances of an NHL defender getting beat one-on-one on a PK are very slow. So the goalies are probably thinking, like, yeah, there, there could be a shot that's going to derive out of this one-on-one battle on this side over here, let's say on the right half wall. But the thing, I've, I've got to be ready, to, and I've got to be ready for that shot, but really I know their tendency is to go over here in that situation. So they're, they're ready, like mentally ready to make that move, to, to set, to push, to block um, if, the pass, if that terrible breakdown does happen and the pass comes over. And that probably, you know, that kind of sinking of the goalie with the PK unit, I'm sure that's that's happened every year with the Oilers, but they're certainly on it this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, uh, the role that uh, uh, Dustin Sh- uh, Schwartz plays is big, bigger than one might have imagined. But, I mean, your penalty killing, I mean, how many times, how many times have we heard the most important penalty killer is the goalie? Yeah, <laughs> and obviously there's a lot of truth, and he's the most important defensive player on the team. Period. Uh, so, uh, uh, but having that goalie prepared for other teams' tendencies, and again, this this is something that wouldn't exactly be, uh, uh, you know, something new at the NHL level. I mean, preparation is key for all the teams. But it sounds like you know, from what he described of how they were going about getting the. Oilers ready. It sounded like a pretty, pretty polished and professional uh, 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 plan that they had uh, going. Already, I'd like to thank the Oilers for uh, making Jim Playfair available, and for Jim uh, to thanks to Coach Jim Playfair for being so generous with his time and 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 open. And now I don't think the the headline of my post versus secrets revealed by Coach. But but what I say is, I think Secret there's to I you think, and me. I think. <laughs> I think fans are going to get a lot out of this. Like, honestly, I think a fan, yeah. most fans are going to read this and think, yeah, that's what they're doing. That's, but that's really interesting. I never heard that before. I never heard it put that way before. I mean, I hadn't heard these things before. Maybe they've been talked about a lot. Maybe I just missed it. But, uh, but I don't think other NHL, there's no secrets revealed here to other NHL teams. They know inside out, backwards, upside down, what the Edmonton Oilers are trying to do on the penalty kill and on the power play. They know the tendencies of other teams inside out. And I think that's, you know, Playfair was able to speak so freely about it because he, he, they just, they all know what everybody else is doing. There's no, there's no secrets about this. It's all happening out on the ice by very and very experienced hockey people are are analyzing it and watching the videotape and breaking down the numbers and doing all kinds of things to understand it. So, secrets revealed for me, but maybe, but not for uh, certainly not for NHL insiders and coaches. Well, I was in the same room as Jim Playfair once because uh, uh, I saw him play his first NHL game. He was a first draft, first round draft pick of the Edmonton Oilers in 1982, wasn't it? Yes. 
okay. 20th overall. And a year later, in the fall of 83, he got called up for one game. And it was the famous Mickey Mouse game where the Oilers stomped the New Jersey Devils 13-4. to And uh, all the, the Oilers had, uh, well, Yari Curry had five goals. Wayne Gretzky had three. Uh, was it Willie Lindstrom had three. They had three hat-tricks in that game. And then one of the other goal scorers was Jim Playfair in his first NHL game. One goal, one assist, two points, plus three. How's that for a nice promising start to a career that never really took off until he till he took off the uh, uh, the equipment and put on a suit and tie, and then he's become a fairly successful coach after all that. But uh, that was a, that was a very memorable game. I still remember it. I'm just looking at <laughs> I'm just looking at Jim Playfair's hockey DB picture from the '80s, Bruce, and that mullet uh-huh. man. He looks like he could be the bass player for Aha. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's got the look. Uh, yeah. Anyway, very uh, that was a that was a real pleasure, and uh, hopefully, maybe in the future, I can talk to more Oilers coaches because uh, I love talking to the coaches. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd love to interview Holland as well. No, the the players, I don't know. Like I, 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 I don't know. Like they're just they have to be so careful. I think in what they say. Yeah. I, I don't often find it very illuminating what the the players have to say. All due respect to the players, I just think they're. If I was interviewed every day about my job, I would say sweet F A as well, um, and reveal nothing. So um, that's generally what I find with player interviews. But maybe I'm just. Well, I, I'm interested in what's the plan. What is it? What is it that they're trying to do? And that's where the coaches yeah. or the GM come into play, and the players are more. You know, we're trying to implement and execute the plan, and yeah. uh, a lot of the stuff that they do above and beyond is stuff that you can't even really necessarily talk about. I mean, you just do it, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's a uh, you know it's just an execution, and and it's it's the creative imaginative offensive play well you can you can't really write a book about it it's just in that moment uh, seeing the uh, seeing the play and making it uh, i mean i never heard wayne gretzky make very interesting descri- he remembered all of his points but i never remember the descriptions of them as being particularly illuminating but so to me i would rather hear you know what what, what do the coaches have to say what is it they're trying to do what is um you know what's what's the what's the uh, what's the objective, and did they achieve it, and what do they still have to work on? You know those kind of uh, follow-ups. But uh, I enjoyed reading this post very much. I think Ken Dryden was a fairly good uh, describer. Yeah. After the fact, like like I'm just saying, like I'm just trying to think of yeah, no, exceptions, huh? <laughs> exceptions, to, exceptions to the rule, Bruce. Exceptions oh yeah, to the general rule. So there are some players who are able to articulate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Dryden did a fantastic job. Wow. I remember the one just passage in his book, The Game, where he talks about when he finally kind of understood goaltending, like, you know, just n- not moving very much in the net, but using every little piece of, of his body in economical fashion to stop the puck. Right. You know, it, that was a very uh, apt description. So there are some players who uh, maybe when it's when they're done their careers, they're more able to articulate uh, exactly what it was like to be a player. I mean, Ray Ferraro is really good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they they do tend to be the exception, and the coaches are. Right. But the coaches are thinking about the tactics and are able to describe that. Riley Shane, Bruce. 
Oh yeah, well we're going to be writing so, about him. Yeah. Starting starting our uh, player reviews. We've gone into some detail on Ken Holland and and uh, Dave Tippett's uh, first season with the Oilers, and we're going to start our player reviews by looking at the several players whose contracts are expiring and whom on whom decisions will have to be made uh, in the coming weeks for uh, uh, the 2020-21 season. And I'm going to start with Riley Sheehan just because he was the guy. We talked about him last week when they signed Gaten Haas, and, and he was sort of the fourth center to be signed. And sort of he got the first musical chair before Riley Sheehan did. And, and so Riley Sheehan, do they keep him or do they look elsewhere? They, you know, four centers isn't enough. They're going to need a fifth one. And, and Sheehan's the first guy they're allowed to talk to. Uh, you know, when the market opens up to go and find a replacement another time. So that that's going to influence the discussions that, that both the team and the players are both looking, I would think, for a little security at this point. But uh, I've, in preliminary investigating him, big surprise here, by far the lion's share of his value is on the penalty kill. Yeah. And he, uh, he came in uh, with excellent... Uh, past history. I wrote about him last summer. It's one one of those ones where I actually guessed right once in a while, and posted his name in July as being a guy that might fit what the Oilers needed. And I looked into his penalty killing record for the previous two years, and he played with I think three different teams over that time. A little bit with Detroit, then with Pittsburgh and Florida. So he played in a different team, different penalty kills, different teammates, and he posted consistently very good. Uh, results for preventing goals on the penalty kill. I think he was like 20th out of 100 or, or something in that range of guys that played significant minutes. And so he, you know, he was in the top, uh, uh, certainly the top quartile of the league. And he did it again this year. And uh, he was uh, on the Oilers' first unit. Uh, lots of responsibility, lots of face-off duty, where he also uh, uh, earned his stripes with uh, just a lot of, a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of work in the D zone in particular. So uh, those are the areas that uh, uh, his play was strong. Five on five, not necessarily that great. And so they could probably do better, find a better player five on five. But I'm not sure they could necessarily get someone that, that f- plugs the holes the way that he did. You know, the, the thing that impressed me that almost the most about Riley Shan. Last summer, remember they were talking about Derek Broussard coming here. Mm-hmm. And Derek Broussard was saying, well, you know, I want to be on the scoring line. I consider myself a top six player and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, that's the last guy they need. You know, they got the top six centers, all the top six centers you could possibly want. They need guys that are going to do the grunt work. And the day they signed Riley Shane, he and his story was completely the opposite. He says, you know, I want the tough minutes. I want the defensive zone assignments. I, you know, I, And I'm going to go and find the exact quote and see to what degree he lived up to it. But I just loved his attitude of what it, what it was he was willing to do to, to stick around in the NHL. And uh, uh, I think we saw plenty of that attitude on the ice. So... Here's what I would say about Riley Shea and Bruce is mm-hmm. that I think we learned uh, the hard way last few years. If the players, if players have the wrong line mate, mm-hmm. they really struggle. We saw this repeatedly. Anyone who played with Milan Lucic in his final two years and poor Jesse Puliyarvi got so much ice time with, with Lucic. It just, I just think it's such a setback 
even strength to play with a guy who can't keep up. And um, I'm going to suggest that J.J. Kara this year had a hard time keeping up, generally speaking, at even strength. Yeah. And Shane played a lot of time with him, and I don't think that line ever clicked. I think that with he, Kara, and Archibald, that line was too slow by far to get it done in the modern NHL. He had two big kind of guys who replicated the same skill set, and it was one too many with that skill set. Now, there was a time, a brief period of time before uh, Joachim Nigard got injured in January, where they had Shan, Nigard, and Archibald as the checking line. And Riley Shan's even strength game suddenly came to life. In nine games uh, that month, he had six points. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, he That line was flying out there. And for a while there, I was thinking, wow, they've done it. They've got, mm-hmm. a th- they've got two lines. It still hadn't worked out McDavid's line mates. They've got two lines. They have the dry settle line going like crazy and they've got a third line. This line is great as a third, as third lines go. So um, I, I'm, I would agree that his even strength play was not great, but I think uh, you get him the right line mates and he he can be a very useful even strength player. That's what I saw for a short period of time. Uh, you need to see it for a longer period of time. But you give him two fast wingers, and I think he can be that kind of. I liked his defensive play in the Oilers zone even strength as well. Thought he was very responsible, and you know he's not much of an offensive player. But if you, if you put him with two guys who can skate a bit and create their own offense, that could work. Yeah. Well. I, uh... Offense is, I mean, it's obviously it's nice to have the offense, but what you really want that uh, the bottom six guys to do is not get killed. And Shane on the season, you know, like they did bleed some goals. Uh, yeah. So five on five was not his real strength, but uh, uh, like say on the penalty kill, uh, good enough. And and 15 points, you know, so not not completely terrible for, you know, a season that wasn't over yet. Uh, for fourth line production, anyway, like it wasn't like he was a, uh, uh, a zero offensive guy, like you know Colin Fraser or something that never scored. So uh, he chipped in a little bit at the offensive end. So yeah, and he was minus. Jujar, Go ahead, yeah, it's a, we're going to find the same thing about Jujar Kara. Almost all of his value was on the penalty kill, or he was terrific. He was. And he was very good. He was number one in the NHL, I found today in researching Shane. Caro was number one in the NHL among forwards who played 90-plus minutes on the penalty kill for fewest goals against per 60. He, he was really good. And, I, I, so, and I, I'm not saying, you know, maybe maybe Juju Caro could be your third-line center instead maybe of Maybe he's Riley Shane, and they, and they dump Shane. But. Yeah, so so I'm just saying the two, two together didn't work, and... Let's let's face it. Kara had some struggles, more struggles at even strength than oh, yeah. than any other player for a forward. Now Shane was minus eight in October, Bruce. Yeah. And for the rest of the season, he was yeah. uh, minus five. So yeah. <laughs> most of his that trouble and Archibald really struggled early. They were hurt. Oh, and they were hurt. They were playing with different line mates every game because one of them wasn't hurt, another one was. Yeah. And they just got caved in the first month, and yeah. then they were pretty good, at least you know, pretty even thereafter. Alrighty. Well, hopefully, Bruce, in the next week, we'll have some good news about the NHL. That's what I got my fingers crossed about. I think it's good. I think we'll hear something the next couple of weeks here. It's my bet. So, but uh, some good news of any description won't go amiss these days. Holy moly! Oh, you can go golfing. It's been a tough year. Well, I guess so. <laughs> I never golf. <laughs> if I knew how to golf. 
Yeah, we're not. I'm not a golfer either. I've got five kids. I mean, when did I have time to golf for the last no. thirty years? Anyway, all right, Bruce. Thank you for talking tonight. Always a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.